All right. Our scripture reading this morning is from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 to 14. If you're using the Pew Bible, you can find that on page 1006. So Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 to 14, page 1006 in the Pew Bible. Please stand with me for the reading of the word. Starting in verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 10, this is the word of the Lord. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified." Amen. You may have a seat. Morning, Bethel. Good to see you all. Um, So here we are um, nearing the end of this series on the five Reformation solas. Um, Just a really helpful summary of the Christian faith in general, but obviously historically rooted and summarizing um, these central uh, tenets of the Protestant faith um, as we are here in the 500th anniversary of of the Reformation. Um, So 1517 and 2017, 500th anniversary. Um, So we've got one more week after this. Solus Christus is this week, and then Sola Dei Gloria is next week. And next week, it starts at 9 a.m., because we're going to show a documentary movie entitled Luther. And so just to give you a little taste, we've got a trailer here we're going to show you. And then um, we'll keep going here. Luther was a bullheaded man who was capable of moments of supreme self-confidence when he knew it was right and he was going to move ahead like a bull in a china shop. The problem with that kind of personality, though, is when they get hold of the wrong end of an argument or when they go off in the wrong direction, uh, the damage can be as spectacular as the greatness was spectacular. I am absolutely certain that no power on, on earth, no force in this world can ever extinguish the kingdom of God, that uh, the church cannot and will not lose. And no longer now would human tradition and ecclesiastical councils and even the Pope himself be the authority in the church. The highest arbitrator in the church would now be, thus says the Lord, as it was recorded in the canon of written scripture.
Okay, so that's next week at 9 a.m. in here. Um, this thing's an hour and a half. Okay, so we are going to start this thing right at 9 a.m., which means you need to get here on time. We're not so good at that. So um, here's some practice opportunity to get here early. You can even bring your own popcorn. Um, so we'll see you here. It's going to start right at 9 o'clock. We're going to end at 10.30, and then the service will start at 10.45 next week. Um, we'll just adjust a little bit to make that all work, okay? So this morning, solus Christus, Christ alone. What does that mean? Does that mean that Christ alone is the only Savior, that there's only one way to heaven? Well, those things are true, right? Jesus said, I am the way, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Acts 4.12 says that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So those things are true, but that actually is not the point of this Reformation sola. The real question was, is the work of Christ on the cross sufficient to justify us before God? Are we justified only on the basis of Christ's work on the cross? Or is it Christ's work on the cross plus some things? So that's actually the point that the Reformers were making. That's what we need to understand this morning. And our primary text is John 19, 28 to 30. It's a brief little text. It's certainly unfathomably deep. Um, we're going to explore only a little bit of its meaning this morning, both from John and also looking at some parallel thoughts in Hebrews. So if you want to turn to John 19. We'll dive in. So there's an outline in the bulletin if that's help for you, helpful for you. The points will be up on the screen as well. Um, so the first point is it is finished, which is language here from John 19. But look back at John 19, 14, so that you can get an idea of the context and the timing that John, as he writes this gospel account, wants to get in our minds. Now, it was the day of preparation of the Passover. That's really important. Okay? It was the it was about the time that the lambs would be sacrificed for the Passover meals. Okay, so here Jesus, at the time when the lambs would be sacrificed so that the blood could be put on the doorpost, remember back at the Exodus, how did the people of God, how did they... Um, how were they rescued from the wrath of God that was coming, the death angel that was coming? Well, they sacrificed this lamb, put the blood on the doorposts, and the, the angel passed over. That's why it's called the Passover. And so they were brought out of Egypt, out of slavery, into freedom, the exodus, by the blood of the lamb, right? And by their mediator, Moses, and so forth. So... Really meaningful time for those Jews, and it's not accidental that the cross took place right after this time. This, I mean, the, the Passover meal, the Last Supper was a Passover meal. So Jesus is the Lamb of God, taking away the sins of the world. He's about to be sacrificed, and so that timing should be in our minds. Jesus bore God's wrath on the cross in our place so that we could be freed from slavery to sin and brought into freedom. He's both the sacrifice and he's the mediator. Okay? So about that time, Jesus bears his cross out to Golgotha. He was crucified. Um, we know from the other gospel accounts that Jesus hung on the cross from sometime after 9 a.m., to about 3 p.m., and we know that it was dark from noon to 3, which is normally the time it's bright. What was the plague right before the death angel, the ninth plague? Darkness. So 
the judgment of God, darkness, and then death. And once again, darkness, the wrath of God is being poured out not on us, but on his son, so that the second exodus, the new exodus, can be accomplished. So John 19, 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, John 19, 28, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So it's one word in Greek, but that three-word phrase, it is finished, is huge. What was finished? But we have to ask the question, right? I mean, what's the it? What was finished? Well, certainly he completed his mission, the purpose for which he came. The work was done. What was the work, <laughs> right? Well, we could answer that in a lot of different ways. One way is to go back to John chapter 6. So flip back there a few pages to John chapter 6 and look at verse 35. And listen to what Jesus explains here about what he came to do. His mission. John 6, 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Spiritual hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. We're all hungry, thirsty. And the problem is when we go after and try to slake that thirst or satisfy that hunger with things that can't satisfy Verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, all that he gives to me, I will never cast them out. Why? Because I've come down on a mission. I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Well, what's the will of him who sent you? This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up the last day. Okay? What's the it? What, what is the Father giving you? Look at verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Look down at verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That sounds like verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And I will raise him up on the last day, verse 44. Now, look at verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So he ultimately points to the work of the cross as how this mission will be accomplished. He's got to give his life. He's got to sacrifice his life in our place so that he can feed us saving grace. So he gave his flesh like a Passover lamb. He is the lamb of God. He was the sacrifice for sin. And just as that blood of the Passover lamb was applied and the death angel passed over, so Jesus is our Passover lamb. So for us, all of us, by nature, we're sinful by nature. We're sinners by choice. The wages of our sin is death. We deserve to die and be eternally separated from God because of our sin. So Jesus died in our place. His blood covers our sin, making full atonement for our sin. And so... 
he had just gone through that three hours in the dark, absorbing the righteous wrath of God in our place, and it was done. It was totally done. It's finished. So Jesus didn't die in order to do most of the work, making it possible that, you know, some, you know, after God does his part, some will do their part. You know, God has done his part, now it's up to you. Remember that illustration that Tyler gave in the Sola Fide message? It's not as if the ship of humanity, you know, has gone down at the fall and we're all just kind of flailing about in the waters and on the verge of drowning, but thankfully God just threw out the life, the life ring, you know, that's Jesus, and for anyone who will grab on, you'll be pulled to safety. No. That would be for those, you know, somehow close enough or good enough swimmers, you know, you got enough life left in you to get over to the life ring. No. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2. Lifeless on the bottom of the ocean. So Jesus died to ransom, to purchase people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. He made us alive together with Christ. That's the new birth. When we were dead. So we weren't swimming over to the life raft. He had to revive us. Saving us by grace alone, through faith alone. Faith alone is like the, <coughs> like the first breath of someone who's been made alive. So when you're a new creation in Christ, there's this regeneration, this awakening that happens. You exhale, that's like repentance, and you inhale, that's faith. So, Again, Jesus didn't die to merely purchase some kind of nameless, faceless, empty set possibility. Well, we'll see who swims and grabs the life ring. He purchased people. This is Revelation 5.9. Purchased people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. He had to ransom us. We all owed an infinite debt of sin, and Jesus paid that infinite debt on the cross. So what is it it's finished means? It means the debt's paid in full. So we deserve the just wrath of God, the righteous condemnation for our rebellion. 1 John 4.10 says, In this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Big theological word, but it means that Jesus bore God's righteous wrath for us in our place. I, this whole idea of wrath, sometimes people chafe at that, like God, I thought he was loving. Well, of course he's loving, but he's also just. And I think we sometimes don't want to grant to God what we so quickly grant to ourselves. Like, you get cut off by somebody in traffic, and what kind of judicial sentiments rise up in your soul? Because you've just been dishonored. Oh, like, okay, so, yeah, we shouldn't cut people off in traffic. But do you see that there's a sense in which that's right? We are image bearers. We're made in God's image. And so for someone to, to do something dishonoring to us, that's just not right. And so there's this, you know, this, like, wrath that rises up. Now, our wrath is really ugly and quickly, you know, we can have hair trigger anger, and it can be ugly. But there is a righteous wrath, right? So if, if we hold on to and we claim this righteous wrath when we as image bearers are dishonored, oh, my word, what is the righteous wrath of God toward us who have gone like this in his face? Our honor is about like this compared to his infinite honor. So what are you going to do with that? Well, the beautiful thing is the one who is just perfectly unswervingly righteous, he cannot sweep that dishonor of his infinitely worthy character under the rug. He says, I'm going to absorb 
my wrath in your place. So Jesus was literally taking hell for you on the cross in those three hours. He was propitiating the wrath of God. You know, in, in, in you know, first century pagan world, you would try to propitiate the gods. You've got to make sure that the gods were on, you know, in a good mood toward you, on your good side. Like if you're going to plant some crops, you want to make sure you, you know, maybe make a sacrifice to the god of, of um, you know, what's the word? Crops. Okay, like whatever that is, you know, just farming. Um, if you want to have a child, you've got to make sure that the fertility god is happy. Right? You want them to be propitious toward you. So you propitiate the deity. So do we do that with God? No, he actually satisfies his own wrath because he's so loving. So in propitiation, his justice and his mercy beautifully come together all for us. So Jesus absorbed hell for us on the cross. Somehow that is like impossible to get our minds and hearts around. In those three hours, in the dark, the judgment of God poured out for all who would ever believe. It's finished. It was done. How how in the world is that possible? That he would take hell times this innumerable number of people that will be around the throne praising the Lamb. So we owed this infinite debt. (laughs) Jesus took hell for us. He drank that cup, the cup of God's wrath to the dregs, slams it down. It is finished, and we get the cup of salvation instead. So there's no wrath left. For people who are in Christ, there's no wrath left. We get the cup of the new covenant, the cup of salvation. So Jesus didn't attempt to save his people. He didn't just create the possibility for people to be saved. He accomplished our salvation. We sing Jesus paid it all for a reason. All to him I owe. That doesn't mean, so I better start trying to pay it back. It means all to him I owe. I owe everything to him because he did everything. That's what we're singing. Or it is well with my soul. My sin, oh, he just stops like, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. (laughs) My sin, not in part, but the whole, past, present, future, all of it is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. So this is absolutely at the center, the foundation of everything we believe All other religions are about do and you will be accepted. Christianity is about done. It is finished. Believing you are accepted because of what Jesus has already done. Christianity is not about your performance. It's about Jesus' performance. In your place. In my place. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So it is finished means All of that. But another way that the Bible unpacks what it means, it is finished, is found in the book of Hebrews. So let's look at this idea of Jesus being seated in the book of Hebrews because it's basically saying the same kinds of things. So we'll look at several passages um, because the theme is repeated through the book. So turn first to Hebrews 1. Actually, it was read um, a little bit earlier, but turn to Hebrews chapter 1. If you're using that Pew Bible, you can find it on page 1001. So this letter of the Hebrews starts out by saying, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our forefathers, to our fathers, by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, his son, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And then this, 
after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So purification for sins has been made. It's done. It is finished. So the fact that Jesus is seated is posture proof that the work has been done. It's like a visual aid to what is conceptually true. So all that's left is to believe that it's yours. So this is merely to accept this work with the empty hands of faith. So repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. In repentance, we drop all of our attempts at justifying ourselves. We receive with empty hands the grace of God through faith alone in what Jesus has done. He's done it all. So maybe you've heard this quote by Luther before. It comes from his Galatians commentary. It's somewhat well known. And he writes this. He says, Here I must take counsel of the gospel. I must hearken to the gospel, which teaches me not what I ought to do, for that is the proper office of the law, but what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has done for me, that he suffered and died to deliver me from sin and death. The gospel wills me to receive this and to believe it, and this is the truth of the gospel. It is also the principal article of all Christian doctrine, wherein the knowledge of all godliness consists. Most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know this article well, teach it unto others, and, memorably, beat it into their heads continually. Okay? We need to beat this into our heads continually. And the author of Hebrews is swinging the gospel hammer to beat it into our thick skulls. So let's welcome these loving blows here. Um, so chapter 1, we see it. Let's look now at chapter 8. You'll see it again in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 to 2. Hebrews 8.1. Now the point in what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So again, this must be important if we're hearing it this many times over and over, the fact that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. And he wants us to understand this because there's so much good that flows from this reality. In fact, flip back to Hebrews chapter 4. <clears throat> so he's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven in, in chapter 8. Look at Hebrews 4.14. Look at all the good that flows from solus Christus, from Christ alone accomplishing this work. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in need. So this throne is a throne of grace, not condemnation, because we have a high priest seated there who has done all the work for us, who has paid our debt in full. It's finished. So we can come with confidence. We don't have to come, like, cowering. So we ought to be really glad that Jesus is seated. The work is done. We can approach the throne of God with confidence. We can expect to receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need because he purchased all that mercy and grace for us on the cross. Now flip ahead to Hebrews 10. It's a passage Tyler read just a few minutes ago. He read verses 1 to 14. We're just going to look at verses 10 to 14. So look there at Hebrews 10, 10 where it says, and by that will, in the context it means the saving will of God that Jesus came to carry out. So by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. It's done. We've been set apart as holy people. 
we've already been sanctified by the once-for-all offering of the body of Jesus Christ. Verse 11, every priest stands. Do you see the contrast there? Jesus sits, the priests had to stand daily at their service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which could never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down. There it is again at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has already perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Get that order. It's not those who get sufficiently sanctified will be perfected. It's those who have been perfected are being sanctified. It's a world of difference. So if you are trusting in Christ alone for your justification before God this morning, you have been sanctified. You are a saint. You're set apart. You're made holy. Purification has been made. It's done. It's finished. There is no more need for him to stand and offer sacrifices or anyone else. There's no more work of sacrifice left to be done. Thus the Son sits and waits for the Father to put all his enemies under his feet. One final passage in Hebrews to help beat this good news into our heads. Um, Hebrews 12, 1 to 2. So here we're called to follow in the footsteps of those who lived and died by faith. Chapter 11, all those people in the hall of faith. And Hebrews 12, 1, we're to run the race that's set before us, this grace race by faith. We run this race. And then Hebrews 12, 2, how do we run this race? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and here it is again, and he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So you can see it's a really important theme in Hebrews. Something we've got to get into our thick skulls, down into our hearts because of all the implications, all of the rich meaning that follows from it. So it says here, he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God, but it's reinforced, the same idea is reinforced by the phrase earlier, Jesus is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. He's the author He's the pioneer. He's the founder of our faith. He started it. He blazed the trail. He did the work. He opened the way. And he's the perfecter of our faith. So he's the beginning and the end. He's the starter and the finisher. He's everything. So the issue over and over again in the Reformation was the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice. It's his sacrificial death in our place. Is that what accomplishes our salvation, or must we contribute to our justification? Must the saints contribute to it for us? You know, those who have done more good than they need, there's a treasury of merit, and you can draw down on that. Do you need that, or is the work of Christ sufficient? Must the Virgin Mary contribute to it for us? interceding for us. Hail Mary, full of grace. Must we do penance when we commit mortal sin? Must we go to confession and be absolved by a priest and do acts of penance? Must all but a few, maybe, believers go first to purgatory? The anteroom of heaven, suffering as long as necessary for the purging and cleansing of our sins. Is that necessary? Or is the work of Christ sufficient? Sufficient to pay for our sins, making full atonement and satisfaction with the Father, cleansing us from our guilt and our shame. Just for what it's worth, the reason why the Roman Catholic Church talks about purgatory, they say, oh, you were forgiven, but you, you still have to pay the punishment, just like a child could be forgiven by their parent, but they still have to deal with the consequences. Okay, there are consequences to our sin in this life. 
But where in the world do you get the idea that you need to pay these after-this-life consequences in order like, to be purged and cleansed? No, no, he, he paid it all. So, the work of Christ is sufficient. So maybe you can get a feel for how this spark of the Reformation kind of lit up the Dark Ages and spread like wildfire. Um, in fact, there's some curious causes and effects that fan the Reformation sparks, um, you know, sparks like John Wycliffe and Jan Hus and Luther's 95 Theses, spark that into flame. And we're just going cons- to consider a few here um, by asking a weird question. What do sausage, butter, beards, and brides have to do with Solus Christus? Okay, so first, sausage. Just in case you weren't awake, now you are. Because I'm talking about sausage. Well, okay. Um, so as you probably know, Lent is a season where no meat is eaten by Roman Catholics the 40 days leading up to Easter. Now, historically speaking, um, Reformation took place. Germany spread throughout Northern Europe, elsewhere. Um, But in Italy, Rome, where fish is common, that might not be too heavy of a yoke to say no meat. In Germany and Switzerland, where sausages were a staple, it's a bit harder, right? So if Luther was the catalyst of the Reformation in Germany, Ulrich Zwingli was the catalyst in Switzerland. And the spark that started the fire of the Reformation in Switzerland was a sausage supper. Do you know this? Okay. March 9th, 1522, Luther nailed the theses on, uh, in, in October of 1517. So it was the first Sunday of Lent. Several tradesmen, two priests, one of whom was Zwingli, cut two smoked sausages into little pieces. Apparently, Zwingli didn't eat any, but he was there to kind of, you know, endorse the whole thing. And then they just made sure everybody knew what they had done. Word sped pretty fast. Two weeks later, Zwingli preaches a sermon entitled On the Choice and Freedom of Food. So he couldn't find the food restrictions in the New Testament, and he wanted everyone to know. He wanted, quote, Christ to become dear to us if we properly feel the sweetness of his yoke and the lightness of his burden. So all these additional laws and traditions were burdensome, needlessly burdensome. Solus Christus actually meant freedom. It meant that his yoke was easy and his burden was light, okay? And sausage played a part in that whole deal. Butter did too. This was new to me. Um, several weeks ago, just in preparation, I ran across this. So according to the fast day rules of the Roman Catholic Church, no meat, milk, eggs, animal fats, or butter could be eaten. And again, that might not be too difficult in Italy where fish and olive oil were staples, but in France and Germany, cutting the butter out was like calling for starvation, okay? So to make matters worse, exporters in southern Europe took advantage of this and sold oil to the northern countries for use on fast days. And what they sold, they were able to jack up the price, it was expensive, and it was poor quality. So Luther writes in 1520, in Rome they make a mockery, fasting, while forcing us to eat an oil they themselves would not use to grease their slippers. Okay, so this whole butter thing kind of helped things along. So to make matters worse, some Roman Catholic clergy traveled about Germany selling indulgences for eating butter. It was a sin to eat butter on a fast day, but for the right price, you could offset that sin with an indulgence and go on buttering your toast. For the wealthy and powerful in the northern countries, the Roman Catholic Church actually granted dispensations on the butter ban. But again, it came at a price. Other regions that paid an ongoing spiritual tax in exchange for permission to eat butter. So this didn't make Martin Luther any too happy. You can imagine how, again, it spread the fires of Reformation among the grassroots. Because what are you saying? Now, some of this was corruption, and and even the Roman Catholic Church was seeking to deal with some of that corruption, say, at the Council of Trent. But still, with indulgences, which continue today, It amounts to forgiveness at a price. Now, wait a second. It is finished. There was an infinite price paid, and it was paid by Jesus. So, 
it's not about the price we pay for an indulgence or a dispensation. So oddly enough, in the providence of God, butter and sausages had a pretty significant hand in the Protestant Reformation. So what about beards and brides? Well, I was listening to the Here We Stand podcast, which I commend to you again. We've, we've put the link in the email a couple times, but there's a little bio, biography every day. If you've got, you know, podcast thing that you use, it pops in your, it's like four or five minutes long, really easy um, to listen to and pretty informative. People you've never heard of, like Heinrich Bullinger, okay? So this week, one of the biographies was of Heinrich Bullinger, who lived 1504 to 1575, and the, in, the title of this little biography was The Majestic Beard of Zurich, okay, by David Mathis. So here's what he said, part of it. In an age when the celibate priesthood set, set itself apart from the laity, in part with clean-shaven faces, the Protestant reformers grew beards to make a statement. Word is that Heinrich Bullinger, chief minister in the leading Swiss city of Zurich, had the best beard of all. That would be impressive these days, you know, because there are certainly pockets where that really matters. Um, one historian describes Bullinger's, describes Bullinger's beard as majestically bushy. And it wasn't altogether disconnected from the theology he carefully grew and groomed haha, in the wake of the Reformation's first shocking loss. Behind his majestic beard was one of the biggest hearts of the Reformation era and one of its most tireless peacemakers. So Bullinger's majestic bushiness was a facial declaration of solus Christus. Enough of the extra-biblical laws and requirements of the unbiblical burdens and restrictions that were the traditions of men, not the word of God. Sola Scriptura. So, speaking of unbiblical traditions of men, the celibacy of the priesthood was also a tradition that was abandoned by the Reformers. So, if you've looked into any history of the Reformation, you know that there were monks, marrying nuns. <laughs> and it happened, you know, not a few times. And it was a theological statement. You know, Martin Luther was a monk, and he married Catherine, and she was this feisty nun. Um, so, these reformers discovered a freedom in Christ that came from abandoning the unnecessary yokes of human tradition and clinging only to Christ, solus Christus. So listen, listen to this. I'm not saying this is a one-to-one -one as far as what was going on, Paul writing to Timothy, but just listen to the nothing new under the sun type stuff in what was going on in the 1500s and 1 Timothy 4 one to five. Just listen to this. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So we don't need a complicated sacramental system. We don't need to do penance. We don't need to spend any time after death paying the punishment for our sins, being purified before we can enter God's holy presence. We are and ever will be right with God, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's really good news. And it, the effects of that are many, but at least they are freedom and assurance. So it's finished. It's finished. Brothers and sisters, you are free you can be assured of your standing with God because of solus Christus. These things are precious to us. Sadly, they are foreign to our Roman Catholic neighbors. If you have that background or, or know some folks, ask them about assurance. They can't know that kind of assurance. Don't you want it for them? So you can lovingly share the it-is-finished truth of the gospel with your Roman Catholic neighbors. Listen to a quote by um, Greg Allison and Chris Castaldo. Historically speaking, Catholics have often feared that the Reformed Protestant notion of assurance potentially undermines any motivation to live a life of holiness. 
Why worry about working out your salvation with fear and trembling if it's a done deal? Assurance appears a form of presumption that gives way to a license to sin. In other words, cheap grace. But isn't that exactly where Paul expected you to go when you heard the gospel in its truth? Solus Christus in its true form. Look at I mean, Romans 6. If the gospel isn't as free as it really is, then why in the world would we be tempted to ask, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? The very reason we ask that question is because it is so free. You see? But then Paul goes on to say, no, of course not. It's not this, you know, get out of hell free, put in your back pocket, go live however the hell you want. No, not at all. He says, by no means, how can we who died to sin, because we were crucified with Christ, we're united to him. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death and were made new? We walk in newness of life because we're new in Christ, solus Christus. So for Protestants, this fact that it is finished does not mean that we can just live however we want. We've been crucified with Christ, therefore we no longer live the life we live in the body. We live by faith alone, in Christ alone. And then later in Galatians, he says, this life of faith is supposed to be a life of freedom. For freedom Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So solus Christus leads to freedom and assurance. So let's savor this briefly here. Hebrews 10, one more Hebrews passage. And then we're going to close. Just look at the effects of the finished work of Christ in Hebrews 10, 19 to 24. Therefore, brothers, because he sat down, because it's all done, it's finished, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. He's the author. He's the pioneer. The curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure, pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope in Christ alone, <laughs> without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good work. So one way you can see all the freedom and the assurance that's coursing through that passage. But one way I've considered to stir you all up to love and good works is by sitting down right now and letting another preacher come and preach a little four-minute sermon as we close. Okay? So I'm the kindergartner preacher, and now the professor is going to preach. DJ Ward so you'll see how it drives these truths home. This is a clip that was played at that 2016 Together for the Gospel conference. So get ready to exult in Christ alone. And then we're going to sing a song that should be welling up in all of our hearts. Um, it is well with my soul. So go ahead and play that video. And then we'll sing. I contend this morning that the death of Christ was not an attempt, it was an accomplishment. Amen. Now, brothers and sisters, when one accomplishes something, it means somewhere they had to have an assignment. Well, what was the assignment? His name shall be called Jesus, for he shall save, not attempt to save, not try to save, not hope to save, not want to save, but he shall save his people from their sin. Is that right? I said, is that right? Now I hear this, I hear this, I hear it on televisions, I hear it in churches. 
that God has done all he can do. The rest is up to you. If the rest is up to you, then he didn't accomplish it. If anything is up to you, he didn't accomplish it. I've even heard this. You've got to help God save you. He can't do it by himself. If God cannot do it by himself, then he didn't accomplish it. He's a false God. He's a liar. And you best not trust him. If he didn't do it, then we ought to stop singing, Jesus paid it all. Saying he paid some of it. Now, brothers and sisters, if he did not accomplish it, we are here in vain. And you can have all of the religion you want. If this was not accomplished, we're going to hell. It's just that blunt, it's just that simple, it's just that clear. But if he did do it, he doesn't need your best and your works need not speak for you. If he did do it, you can leave here rejoicing that your sins are now under the blood and he stands as your substitute, your mediator before God this morning, pleading the blood, pleading his blood that perfect sacrifice, that holy attainment, he's pleading the blood. You can rest that all of my sins are under that blood. Did he accomplish it? Did he fail? Do we need Mohammed to come after him? Do we need another prophet after him? I declare this morning, he paid it all. He paid it all. Every drop of it. Every sin I was going to commit, every sin I thought about committing, he nailed it to his cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. It is well with my soul.